Relay for Life is the most important thing to me. I love the survival walk. That is my, that's my favorite time of the whole relay. When I get to make my first lap around this track, and it's actually like a new beginning. Today, I'm going to fight. Tomorrow, I'm going to fight. They told me that I would have chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, and more chemotherapy. And that's exactly how it went from, uh, <laughs> I went from being a, a high school student, doing academic team, doing beta club, doing homework, to getting needles stuck in me, going through this surgery, going to that bone marrows. And it was all like a flash. It happened instantly. There was not a time that went by slowly where I could still worry about school. I couldn't do that kind of stuff anymore. That stuff was in the past. I never wished this on anybody, so I said, what if I can fight for somebody else so they won't have to go through this? If they keep testing stuff on me, maybe somebody else won't have to. I've been off therapy for almost three years, and now I'm doing it again because of the spots that are on my lungs. It's the same cancer, it just returned. So I did a year and a half process, and I'll do another year and a half process. Almost every day, you're just like, if I, if I just stopped treatment, I would feel better for a little while, and then it'd just be all over. You may not can do much. You may can't take it away. Nobody can take it away. But if you can just give me that little extra push to keep going or tell me you love me, that is a caregiver. The word survivor, that's the term that this relay is about. It means determination. It means hope. It means love, remembrance. We're trying to fight for this cure. I think about everybody else who has tried to fight this and couldn't, and I feel that me as a survivor, I have to keep fighting for them. I'm still here, so I'm going to do something about it. Welcome to chapel this morning. I want to talk a little bit more about Relay for Life and ways that you can get involved with that. And so we've gotten some guests here to share a little bit about that with us. So share with us. All right. Uh, I'm Nathan Robbins. I'm one of the co-chairs for the Relay for Life at Baylor this year. Real quick, if you could raise your hand if your immediate family has been affected by cancer. All right. Keep your hands up. Uh, how about family friends? How about extended family and relatives and friends whose families have been affected by cancer? All right. If you look around... Almost everyone in here's hand is raised. Cancer affects more people than pretty much any other disease. In Texas alone in 2009, there were over 98,000 additional cases of cancer discovered. The American Cancer Society fights cancer through funding cancer research, patient, patient services, and advocacy. And this year, uh, for the third year, uh, the American Cancer Society is hosting the Relay for Life at Baylor. Okay, guys, so our Relay for Life is April 16th to 17th, and it's an all-night event. It goes from 7 p.m. on Friday to 7 a.m. on Saturday, and what it is is a huge party celebrating all the fundraising we do as teams, and that's how you can help. You can join or form your own Relay for Life team and start fundraising now and then go all the way to April, and that night we celebrate everything we've accomplished. This is our chance to fight back against cancer and raise money for local patients to get care and services, as well as money for research across the nation with big hospitals. And what you can do is either form a friend 
like a team with your friends or just your student organizations. A lot of the sororities and fraternities are getting into it, and a lot of service organizations are getting into it. So talk to your presidents. Um, if you want to learn more about it, just go to www.baylor.edu slash Relay for Life, and um, we hope to see you guys out there. Great. Thank you, guys. I hope that you'll get involved with Relay for Life. Baylor has always done a great work each year with that. Um, my mother is actually a cancer survivor uh, two times over, and so I know a lot of you here have been affected with that as well. Let's pray this morning. Holy God, have mercy on us this day. Still our minds from the chaos that entangles us. And show us your way. Amen. Since the writing of the Old Testament, artists have played a significant role in the life of the church and in the creation of our theology. See, in, in the beginning, God created. Does that sound familiar to you? In the beginning, God created. I've often told people that we serve a creative God, the culmination of creativity. As we practice our worship here at Baylor, we include artists by way of images that we see on the screen. We include artists by the way of musicians that we have here on the stage. We include artists in the written word. I don't know if you know this or not, but on Wednesdays, a lot of the things that are read from the stage, whether they be words of testimony or prayers, um, a lot of them have been penned by your very classmates. See, this is, in fact, our liturgy. And some of you may be even turned off by the word liturgy. You may think high church. Maybe you think lofty steeples. Maybe you think a grand, magnificent organ. And, in fact, liturgy does take place in places that look very much like that. But liturgy also happens here at Baylor, at chapel, on Mondays and on Wednesdays in different ways. Because, you see, the word liturgy simply means this, the work of the people. So liturgy on Wednesdays for us is the work of us. Us, you, me, the chapel staff, your classmates. It's our work together and it simply is this, our longing to express to God that we are his people. It's our act of worship. That's what liturgy is. We're blessed today in chapel to have Michael O'Brien. I hope that you'll be really attentive this morning because it's a, it's a special day. He's a self-taught artist and novelist, and I would add liturgist. He specializes in painting religious imagery, a field that ranges from liturgical commissions to work reflecting on the meaning of the human person, transcendence, and eminence. His essays urge people to rediscover authentic spiritual sources and the absolutes of the Christian faith. He's published eight novels. He is a person of deep commitment to art and to the Word of God. He comes to us from a small village in northern Ontario. He tells me earlier that his village is four hours north of Toronto. So if you can do some geography in your own mind to figure out where that is. 
he spent some additional time with Brooks College and will also be spending some time with those of you who are in the Honors College uh, tomorrow. We're honored to have him here on the Baylor stage as part of our Baylor Chapel experience. I hope that you'll listen attentively for the next few minutes as we're led somewhere to the face of God by Michael O'Brien. Please welcome him this morning. As a writer, uh, writer of fiction and a journalist as well, uh, and a painter, which is a different kind of language, I'm very conscious of the power of words. I'm very conscious as well uh, that we in the modern age are saturated in words, drowning in noise of all kinds. I often recall to myself uh, a passage in one of, I think it's St. Paul's letter. You probably know better than I do. Where he says that those who are teachers in the body of Christ will be judged on judgment day more severely, more stringently than any of the other ministries, those who are involved in other ministries. This is because those who teach, those who are bearers of the word of God and the word of life, are not just imparting data. We've come to think of language in the modern age as transfer of infobytes, images, Gnostic packages. But this is to misunderstand what language is and what is really going on here in existence. You know, we're not in the middle of a giant machine. We're not components of a machine. We're involved in something very mysterious, very beautiful and terrible and glorious and unfathomable by the human mind alone. Man is a mystery to himself. We are, each of us, mysteries to ourselves. Who are we? What are we? Why are we here? What are we for? Where, where are we going? What will be the end of our lives? What will be the meaning of my life? At this stage of your lives, your very much focused, I would think, on discerning uh, your vocations in life, married, single, religious, ministry, you're discerning your occupations, perhaps. It can be a confusing time. I have six children, and they've all gone through this process, and some are still going through it, of trying to find out, what am I for? What am I good at? But often this question hides a deeper question. What is my mission in life? The Latin, the Latin word missio, missio uh, is charged with meaning. It's not just 
what will I do in a pragmatic, utilitarian sense in this world, in this society. It's saying, why is my existence here going to change the lives of my community? By community, I mean the community of the human family. And part of the affecting of other lives is going to be through the medium of language, how we use words, what, not just what we say, but how we say it. And so it begs the question, what really are words? We all use them, from a baby's babble to the sayings of the elderly. Every day of our lives, we are saturated in human language. But what really is happening here when we speak or when we listen? Why do we do it? Think of three little words. Perhaps the most familiar phrase on the planet. I love you. I love you. In the mouth of a child, it's a very, it's a very beautiful thing. In the mouth of someone who you're falling in love with, it's also beautiful, but opens up vistas of other meaning, deeper meaning. Think of the alternative words, I hate you. In the mouth of a child, it's just not very deep. Two-year-olds especially. In the mouth of an adult who is angry or hostile or at some level is speaking from a spirit of malice or hatred, these words have another meaning, and they have a power, too. Words change us. Now, there's a whole vast oceanic vocabulary between I love you and I hate you. Uh, but what we so often forget is that we're not just transferring info bytes to each other. What we are about when we speak and listen and the flow of communication happens is we are participating, we are moving in the flow of the communion of the human family, first and foremost, and if it's infused with sanctifying grace within the body of Christ, but all of it, all of it, all human communication in whatever form you can think of is moving us either towards paradise, where we will live in the eternal communion of love, in the, the love of the Holy Trinity, or it is moving us closer to hell, to eternal torment. And so we must take care with our words. I tremble sometimes when I think of the words of my words, which have been published, hundreds of thousands of them. And I recall the warning of Scripture, of 
that we will be judged on every word we have spoken. It's Jesus who says it. That's right. It's Jesus who says. Um, why? Why does he say this? Because words have power. They have spiritual content. Not just, not just the literal content of what is being said, but the spiritual meaning of what is being said, whether it's conscious or subconscious. It's, it has meaning. Think of this little passage from, you all know it, I call it the first words of the recreation of the world. I call it the new Genesis. It's the first chapter of John's Gospel. Think of these words. Remember, John here is, is not just giving us information about the Messiah, what the, who the Messiah is. He's, he's doing it in a form. He's doing it in a form that is not just true, it is also beautiful. Why? Why is he doing that? Why does John particularly have this beautiful gift for doing that? It's because impelled by love, impelled by a profound power of love that is pouring forth from his heart, not just his mind, but from his heart and his spirit. He is telling us about the one he loves. But more importantly, he is telling us about the one who loves us, who calls us, the body of Christ, the bride. He is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is coming. He has come, and he is coming again. He loves us. He is in love with us, and we hardly know him. So John is speaking in this form to crack open our hearts, to allow this increase of light to enter our minds, our hearts, and our souls. The first word of this new Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not, was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome it. In another passage, it's in, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he's, he says, a very mysterious passage, but it's, it's just a few, few phrases, but it's the entire good news compacted. But it's a gateway into an inf infinite world of meaning. He says, speaking of Christ, he says, all things were made by him, through him, and for him. Before such a passage, you can only fall silent 
you really should fall silent and just go, whoa, what, what is, this is like a view, a window into the infinite, the divine, uh, the great mystery and drama of what is happening here among us. We are part of this great story, this great, uh, shocking drama of creation and the unfolding of salvation history in which we are a part, the true story. How little silence there is in the modern age, how very, very little silence there is. If I had to characterize our times, I would not call it the, the computer age or the space era or, or the age of anxiety. You know, there's a thousand epithets for our times. I would call it the age of noise. Because our generation, our and your generation, is unique in the history, the entire history of mankind. No generation has ever been bombarded with continuous noise as ours has, just simply on the level of the human brain continuous stream of invasive noise in, in many kinds of noise. As a consequence, we have seldom learned to be at peace in silence, to rejoice in silence. We fear silence because the inner noise within us ferments and boils up and throws things into the conscious mind that frighten us, increase our, our pain, our, our sense of unfulfilled hunger, longing, loneliness, alienation. These are very alienated times. Never has there been so wealthy a civilization as ours is. Never before. And never before has there been so depressed civilization. Why is there so much depression? I think because the deepest longings in the human heart are not being met by this culture. They are not being met. They're being drugged, anesthetized, but they're not being fed good food, the food that leads to life. Where will we find this good food? Where will we learn to hear the word that gives life to us? If not, in moments of silence. The silence we are so terrified of. It's important to understand that the silence I'm not... I'm, the silence I'm speaking about is not the absence of noise or the shutting down of speech, the clamping of our mouths shut, it's something deeper and more beautiful. True silence is the presence. It's the presence of being. It's, it's a moment where we become more fully aware that we, we exist. We all know we exist. Why do we need to know more about that? What we need to understand is that we exist as each of us in a unique way as something miraculous, 
something truly miraculous. In fact, a work of God. A beautiful work of God. Each of us never before seen, never to be repeated. Each of us with a particular mission in existence. Mysterious mission. What worries me so very greatly about the modern age is how it uses language and information and knowledge in such a way that man is experiencing his own being increasingly as a mechanism. We're being told at every turn that we are components in, a, in really a, a large machine, a meta-machine, vast, powerful, rewarding us with pleasures at every turn, but simultaneously reducing our sense of our eternal value, our indestructible value. We are not machines, and we never can be machines. We are not numbers, though logistical needs seem to have affixed a large quantity of numbers to our lives. But these are tools. They can be useful tools, reducing chaos in the human, human society. But the danger is when the tool begin, begins to dominate the one who uses it. When the tool begins to reshape the user, here is our danger. When the servant becomes the master and begins to tell us things that are radically false about the meaning of our lives. Anything that reduces you to a number, and no more than a number, is of the spirit of the beast of the book of Revelation. The beast has a number. The beast looks at you and sees numbers, sees components, sees things that must be manipulated to his own ends, negated and ultimately destroyed as his masterwork in his great revolt against God. The kingdom of God, which is the real universe and the real story, the kingdom of God is a place where the Father looks at each of us. He looks deeply into each of us. And he does not see numbers. He sees persons. He looks at each of us and sees a person made in his image and likeness. No matter how damaged we may be, or holy we may be, each person is a beloved child of the Father, a son or a daughter of the one who made us. Do we know this? Do we really know this? Or is it merely a theological abstraction? I think mostly we live as if it's not quite true. We believe with our heads if we are Christians, but we do not believe with our hearts. And here is where silence, here is where the true listening and the true speaking comes to our rescue. Here is where, in brief, mysterious moments, the gates of heaven open 
for us. True listening, if you persevere, is not about obtaining uh, route maps, Gnostic manuals, info that will get you through this life in a kind of self-salvation plan. True listening is to come before the Father as a very little child, a very little child. It is to be a fool and to not be afraid of that. Preferably a good fool and not a bad fool, but to be so small that we can say, I need you. I am insufficient without you, my father. I hardly know you, my father. I cannot see you. Help me to see you with the eyes of my heart. This asking is very precious in the eyes of the Lord, to come before him in this state of weakness, not power, not thinking we now have a handle and a possession on salvation, but with the heart of a child. You know what the Lord says about this. Unless you receive the kingdom as a little child, you will not enter it. This is the spirit of Moses on Mount Horeb before the burning bush. This is the spirit of the apostles on Mount Tabor uh, during the transfiguration. What did they do? The apostles fall on their faces before this revelation. They fall on their faces. Do we in the affluent late West fall on our faces before the living God or is he a, just a compartment in our lives, a godly compartment? Is he our Father? Is Jesus our Savior who loves us? Is he the fire of love and the face of the hidden God made visible to us? Is he? Or is he only here? Well, that's, that's a great beginning. But love, marriage, the conjugal love that God desires, the bridegroom and the bride, his church, is not about just getting things right in our head about the relationship. It is about falling in love into an eternal, sweet and beautiful fire of love, like the fire on Mount Horeb, that burned without destroying its fuel. In fact, the fuel became what it was intended to be from the beginning. This is God speaking to man in these images, in these true stories that actually happened. But he is writing a great story through this, through the sacred scriptures. But he's also writing a great story through each of your lives. Many things happen to us that we do not understand, especially the blows of evil, especially when this strikes us. Everything is thrown into question. Where is God? Where is God? We feel the absence of God. And the noise of the world rushes in to fill this feeling of the void, of the absence. 
We increase the dose of the very drug that is killing us. It takes away pain for a while. But it is not our healing. We must go to the true speaking, to learn to listen to the true speaking of our Father to our hearts. Now this may, in fact almost certainly, will not be outside of scripture. It will certainly not be a voice talking to us. It may take that form. Words heard in the heart of the soul words spoken by the Holy Spirit. It may take the form of images, or it may take the form of silence of a very particular kind. Not the silence of the suppression of speech, not the silence of the absence of the speaker, but the silence of true speaking, which is total presence. The Father is present to us, he waits for us to fall silent. How rarely do we fall silent, interiorly or exteriorly. He waits for us to fall silent, that he may speak in a language that we have not yet learned. We have not yet learned it. And so I would say, make possible in your lives, those moments, those little moments of silence where you're not doing anything, you're not producing anything. This wasting of time is perhaps one of the greatest things you can do in this life, this wasting of time for God. I often think in terms of, of language and speaking, God speaking to man, of course, there's a multitude of forms in which that happens in the sacred scripture and in our, our own lives. But there's a beautiful little moment in the first book of uh, Samuel. It's the story, I'm sure you all know it. It's, the, it's really the call of Samuel. He's just this, this little kid, and he's ministering in the temple to the prophet Eli. And he's sleeping in the temple. He's a servant, he's just nothing more just a servant, a little boy. And he hears the Lord calling him, Samuel, Samuel, from the Holy of Holies, Samuel, Samuel. And three times he awakes and goes to the sleeping prophet Eli, wakes him up thinking, Eli has called him. Not so. So in the fourth time, the boy has been instructed to say, if it is the Lord speaking to you, you must say, here I am, Lord. I, I come to do your will. Here I am, Lord. I am listening. So much is in this little phrase. I am listening. So it's, it's, again, it's the heart of the child. He's going in obedience to the prophet's instruction. But his life, his life is in this very moment. The heart of a child says, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. I am present. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so here we have a child in a moment of total attention. He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know that 
he, a child, has to become a prophet to the prophet, nor that he will grow in grace and favor with the Lord and will become the prophet that brings about the anointing of David and the defeat of the Philistines and the, the rescuing of the Ark of the Covenant, nor all that follows from David's reign. And from this root of Jesse will come the Savior of mankind. And where does it, where does it begin? A little boy saying, here I am. And knowing nothing beyond this, that he has made himself present. Go out into the desert, alone if you want no witnesses, and say, here I am, Lord. Dance, sing, cry, weep, rejoice, laugh, look at reality. See, see the, the language in nature itself where God is continuously speaking to us. Many marvels and signs are there. Many dangers, too. Watch out for rattlesnakes. It's a world charged with speaking, but we do not know how to hear. We do not know how to listen. And if you cannot go out into the literal desert, go into the quietness of your own room, into the the little desert of the heart and the soul and say every day, maybe many times a day, here I am, Lord. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. He will speak. He will speak. It may not be in a language that you know yet, but he will speak. But all of it depends on you making time and space for your own self to listen. Probably the best thing I can do at this moment is to uh, fall silent. And so I shall. So perhaps, uh, if you would, uh, please stand and... Uh, Let's say, let's say a final prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. Enkindle in us the fire of divine love. Pour forth your Spirit into our hearts that we may be recreated, that we may be true sons and daughters that we may know you and love you and serve you. Heart of Jesus, bless these sons and daughters of yours. Bless them, Lord God, our Father. We give you our hearts. We give you our weakness. We thank you for our weakness. We thank you for your strength. Purify us, Lord. Strengthen us and bring forth from each of our lives the fruit you most desire for eternity. Praise be to Jesus Christ, now and forever. Amen.